Good morning again. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, while everybody's getting situated, uh, we haven't said this before, but the choir has started practicing for their Christmas uh, cantata, and uh, they're always accepting applications. If you're interested in uh, singing in the choir, I am sure that they'd love to have you. And just because you come and sing for Christmas doesn't mean that you're on the hook to stay. And so you can always come try them out and uh, see if that's something you'd be interested in doing. So now that you're in Ephesians chapter 4, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the privilege to be gathered together with like-minded believers this morning. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place to pay for our sin and then rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life with you. Lord, we thank you for your apostle Paul who wrote this letter. God, we thank you for the encouraging things that he says. And God, tonight or today, as we talk about the more practical side of this letter, Lord, I pray that you would uh, open our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of areas where we need improvement. And God, I pray that, uh, that you would start revival amongst us. And God, I pray that you would start with me. Lord, I pray uh, that in a mighty way this morning that you would uh, speak to your people. God, I pray that you would use me uh, to feed your sheep despite all of my flaws. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Quick review again with the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. As you remember, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And Paul, uh, while he's in under house arrest in Rome, he sets out and he writes a letter, the Ephesian, letter of the Ephesians, very similar to the letter that he wrote to the Romans. This letter is a more condensed version and this letter is also a little bit more practical for the, uh, for the church when it comes to application. And so what Paul does is he writes six chapters. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are all theology. Theology is the study of God. And so Paul, for three chapters, is going to tell you uh, all of these great things about God. And he's going to tell you all of about all of these great things that you have as a believer in God. And so you've got all of these great things. And so you're in the, the first three chapters of Ephesians, you're getting excited, you're getting excited, you're getting excited. And then in chapter 4, he turns the tables and he says, as a result of all these things, you need to live your life this way. And so last week he started telling us how we as a church should model ourselves if we're going to be, uh, if we're going to have all of the things that God wants us to have in the church, like being mature, like uh, having unity, all of these other things that are good for the church to have. And so in Ephesians, you stay in chapter 4. I'm going to walk you along some of the good things that you have in the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, he tells you that God chose us to be holy and blameless. He also gave us redemption. He gave us forgiveness. And then he makes known to us the mystery of his will. And so God gives you all of these things. And on top of the redemption and the forgiveness that we always talk about, you get an insider's view into the will of God as a child of God. Then he says that he wants you to know the hope to which you've been called. He also wants you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he wants you to know about his, God's, incomparably great power that's in you now. He also tells you that you, if you're a believer, that at one time you were dead. You were spiritually dead and God woke you up. So if you're a believer now, 
Once you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now because of God's abundant mercy, he's woken you up and now you believe. He goes on to say that now there's Jews and Gentiles have come together in Christ. Then he tells you that in the past, this mystery was hidden, but now you know it. Then this, this is in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And he wants you to be strengthened with power, in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. Now, he wants you to have power for a specific reason. And the reason is in the middle of verse 18. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so in the beginning of Ephesians, you find out all of these miraculous, great things that you as a believer have in Christ. And most of all, he wants you at the very end, he prays that you would have power so that you will know how much Christ loves you. It says that this love that he has for you is incomparable and it surpasses knowledge. And so it's impossible. If I was to take a poll and ask you who was the smartest one in the room, um, I don't want you to raise your hand or anything, but even that person would be incapable of understanding exactly how much Christ loves you. That's how big of a deal it is. You can't get it. You can't understand how much Christ loves you. And I want to drive this home because it's out of the love that Christ has for you that he's going to ask things of you. So now go over to chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17 says this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now some of your translations say, Every kind of impurity with greediness. But listen to this. Paul has just finished telling them that if you're a believer in Christ, there's no longer Jew and Gentile, but now Jews and Gentiles are one. They're children of God. You have been, as a Gentile, adopted into God's family, and you're no longer a Gentile. And if a Jew is a believer in Christ, he's no longer a Jew. Now, this is an incredibly deep concept that we're just scratching the surface. So, now there's, there's this one new thing, and it's, they're called followers of Christ, or Christians. Now, what you have is he says, now you, as a child of God, don't walk anymore like the Gentiles used to walk. You've been called out of that. Don't do it anymore. He says, they... Don't live any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He says that now you're a child of God. You came from being a Gentile. And now that you look back at how the Gentiles live, and I'm going to call you guys on this side of the room Gentiles. I'm just going to point to you for Gentiles. They are futile in their thinking. Their thinking is useless. Their thinking is pointless. Now, listen to this. If you, as a, uh, as a citizen of Windsor, if you get saved... You go from being a Gentile to a child of God. 
And now Paul says for you, no longer live like the people that you came from. You're not to be like them anymore because you're not like them. Now, this is going to be tough to grasp a hold of, but we're going to, we're going to follow it and we're going to go to a couple different uh, passages so that it'll make more sense. But listen, once you get called out of something and you're a child of God, your life is set on a track towards godliness and the things that people used to do are pointless. Now that you're a child of God, you don't have to bury yourself in work because you realize that there are more important things out there. Now that you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about keeping up with the Joneses anymore. You don't have to always be getting a new boat. You don't always have to be getting a new car. You don't always have to get a new river house. You don't always have to remodel your house. You're a child of God now, and there's a different set of things that matter to you than what matter to all of the Gentiles. You following me? The Gentiles are worried about worldly things, and now that you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about worldly things. Because now you have insight into God's will, and God tells you that at the end of the age, all of the the things that, that you used your treasure to buy are all going to be burned up. And the only things that are going to last for an eternity are the things you did for our king. And so you as a Gentile, or you as a child of God, don't live like everyone else in town. You should have a different set of priorities. You should have a different set of values than they have. So... I urge you, no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Because the reality is is that all those things I listed, while it is nice to, to be fully invested in work and do a great job, I'm not saying you do a bad job, but some people are married to their work instead of doing things for Christ. And so keep in mind that you are different than everybody else, and it should show. Then he says in verse 18, those people that are doing all of those things that are living for self, they're darkened in their understanding, and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And so the Gentiles, the people who aren't children of God, their hearts are hardened towards God, and what matters most to them is themselves. Now, this isn't going to make a lot of sense unless you spend any time looking at it, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to explain it. In verse 19... It says, those people, having lost all sensitivity, have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust or greediness for more. And so these people who are not children of God have a continual lust for more things. Now, some of this is sexual. Some of this is not. Some of this is, is, is flat-out selfishness and greediness. And so if you were to go over to Romans chapter 1... We don't have time to go there. We're going to go to a couple other places. In Romans chapter 1, you find out that when God judges people, he doesn't do it like you and I think that we should do it. When we think of judgment, we think electric chair. We think, oh, that person's caught up in sin. They should definitely get hit by a bus on the way to work because they shouldn't have done those things. That's the sort of punishment that we think. We think of God's judgment striking people with lightning. Maybe you don't. By the, by the looks, you look looking at me like I'm a bad person. I know you think that stuff too. Uh, so much so that they even wrote a country song that says, I'll pray for you. I'll pray a piano falls from the sky and all of these other things. And so I know you sing along with that song. And so in the back of your mind, you think that, that God should judge them. But you learn in Romans chapter 1 that God's judgment on people sometimes is allowing them to do exactly what they want to do. Sometimes you do this with your children. Son, don't touch that. It's hot. Son, don't touch that. It's hot. You want to touch the grill? Go ahead and touch the grill. 
Now you're crying because you touched the grill and now you're hurt. And he doesn't see it as judgment, but it really is judgment. You following me? God does this exact same thing with us. And he says that, uh, that sometimes people's sins and the hardness of their heart and the wicked things that they're in, it looks like they're pleasing themselves. But he says, no, that's actually my wrath being poured out on them because they're going to see. I told them don't do it. I told them don't do it. You want to do it? Go ahead and do it now. I understand. Have it your way. And what you're going to find out is that over time, these people, the hope is that through God's patience and through God's um, compassion is that that draws them back in. So sometimes God's wrath is allowing you to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing. And so some of you that get caught up in sins and you can't get out from underneath of them, you're actually in God's wrath because he's giving you what you think you want. So in the end, you realize that it's futile and that it's useless. And then hopefully you come back to God where you can be made content. And so he says they've lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and greediness. If you turn to Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, go forward two books, Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. says this, and this is Paul again talking, and he says in Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever brings your earthly nature, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And so he says that when people, in the book of Ephesians, when these people lose sensitivity, they give themselves over to sensuality, they indulge in impurity with greediness. Paul says that when you, as a child of God, act greedy, it's actually idolatry. Now, when you think of idolatry, you probably think of a a, a Buddha shrine, and everybody recognizes a, a, a a wooden carving that someone worshiped as an idol. Well, Paul says that when you are greedy, you are worshiping an idol. And that idol, the idol that most Americans worship is self. Whatever's good for me is good for me. And forget all of you, I'm getting what's mine. You look at, you look at people trying to climb the corporate ladder. They will do absolutely anything necessary to be next in line for whatever position they want to have. You look at people that are some of your friends, they'll do whatever they have to do to get a new car. They'll do whatever they have to do to get a new house. Banks will loan you way more money than you actually need for a house. And they will bury you. But in our American culture, we worship ourselves so much that we bring all of that on ourselves. And then we don't have anything left to give God because we're so greedy, we've used it all on ourselves. That's tough. Then he says this in verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You weren't like that. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says, you weren't like that. You didn't come to know Christ that way. You heard of him and were taught in him. So you were discipled. 
So you didn't just hear and then you never came back. You stayed. You were a part of the church. You found somebody who was ahead of you in the faith and you learned from them. You were taught. You were taught in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. This is what you were taught. This is one reason why people cannot, why it's a bad idea for people to get saved and then never come back to church. Because we talked about this on Sunday night last night. Somebody asked a question, excuse me, on Wednesday night about what about people who say they don't have to go to church. They can meet with God in the woods. They can meet with God on the lake. They can meet with God these other places. You can't be taught if you meet with God on the lake. You are not the be-all, end-all. You are part of a body if you're a child of God, and you're supposed to come meet with other believers in a, a church gathering, and you're supposed to be taught. You can't be taught when you're out there on your own. And so what happens is that, don't take this as, uh, as insulting, but you don't know anything if you're out there by yourself. I don't just go sit with my car and hope I become a good mechanic. No, I, I Google how to change my radiator and things like that, and then I do it. So I get taught somewhere, and then I grow. So he says, you weren't like that. You were taught, and this is what you were taught, with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. So you were taught that when you became a child of God, you were to put off your old self. There's scriptures that go along with this. Uh, let's go to Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Now I've alluded to this earlier in, in a few sermons, but we haven't read it. So Romans chapter 6. Verse 3, if you're not comfortable flipping back and forth, you're welcome to stay in Ephesians. But if you can turn quick, you're welcome to. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And so this is what this looks like. And this is, this is going to be a little bit morbid, but I need you to hang on and, and, and be a grown-up for a minute. When someone gets baptized, it's symbolic of them dying. Just like Christ died on the cross, was buried in the grave, and then rose from the dead. And so when I get the opportunity to baptize somebody, you, you take them and you put them under the water, and it's symbolic of the old self dying. You can't become a Christian unless you die to yourself. You have to put away sin. You have to repent. And so you die to sin, you're in the grave for three days, and you're raised back up to a new life in Christ. The symbology there is incredible. When you go underwater and it's symbolic of dying with Christ and you're raised back up, it's almost like the dead man who died is still on your shoulders. So yes, you died. But it's like the old man is on your shoulders still. And the imagery that Paul gives is that you need to put off the old man. So if I was to die to myself, I still have a 200-pound guy on my shoulders that I need to get rid of. It's awkward walking around with a big guy on your shoulders. And so the way that you put him off is that you just get rid of him and, and you become new in Christ. So when you die, the, all the old things become new. 
So you've been baptized, you've, you've died to self, and now you're raised again, but the dead man is still around, and you've got to get rid of him. Okay? He doesn't just go away. Then he says this, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And so that that 200-pound dead guy is, is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and you've got to put him away. The old self has to go. Some people say things like this, and it makes me want to cry in church. Somebody, some Christian will get mad at something, and they'll say, there's still enough of the old me to really fight that guy. And it's like, well, if you're a child of God, you're to be putting away all of that thing. You shouldn't be concerned with who you were and what you were before you got saved. You're supposed to be something brand new. And so bragging about what you still have around left from before you got saved is an absolute tragedy because all of that stuff you're supposed to put away, and you're supposed to be new in Christ. And so... He says, you were taught, this is verse 22, in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so all of this sounds good, right? You you come to Christ, you're baptized, symbolic of dying to your old self. But how do you actually get rid of the dead weight, the sin, the old man that's on your shoulders? Because it sounds really good to put on the new self created to be like God. It'd be nice if when you got saved, you were automatically behaved like something new. Now listen, when you get saved, you do become new. But it's kind of like you have this old, dirty car sponge. You know when you wash your wheels with a car with a sponge, it gets all nasty? And even if you have a clean bucket of water, you take that nasty sponge, you dunk it in clean water, and then you wring it out. But you know that the sponge is still dirty, even though you've rinsed it out and you've cleaned it. Your old self is kind of like a sponge. You've been picking up things all along. When Christ comes along, he, he cleans you and he wrings you out, but the flesh is still rotten and full of deceit and you've got to somehow get rid of it to put on the new self i'm going to go here you guys don't flip there i'm going to go over to first second peter chapter one second peter chapter excuse me i'm at the wrong one i didn't mark that one second peter chapter one verse five second peter one five says for this very reason Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So he says, remember, it's by faith you're saved. You're saved by grace through faith. So add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Listen to this. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do you put on the new man? It's not easy. It's something you have to do. You have to add knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love into your life. If you are out cutting grass, and if you're like me, you just get nasty cutting grass, and your wife's been out shopping while you've been cutting grass, she doesn't really, but she's not here, so she wasn't here to give me a mean look. 
If your wife's out shopping while you're cutting grass and she comes home and she says, hey, I got you all of these new clothes. You'd say, great, thank you. But those clothes don't do you any good until you shed your old clothes and you put on the new clothes. And it takes work because you have to get out of your old clothes. You have to wash up. Then you get the benefit of the new clothes and you get to look sharp. Following me? But just because someone gives you something doesn't mean that it's doing you any good. You can have a bunch of new clothes in your closet, but unless you put them on, they're useless. And so how do you put off the old man and put on the new man? It takes work, and Paul tells you. He says in verse 25, he says, Therefore, this is how you put on the new self. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, that's as far as we're going to get, but the rest of Ephesians is telling you what to do so that you can put on the new self. And so it's not just enough to stop sinning, but you have to pick up things and do them if you truly want to do to become mature in this thing we call the Christian faith. So he says, each of you, verse 25, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. This is tricky because a lot of you think I'm not a liar. I don't lie. So falsehood is only talking about lying. When you're fake, you're full of falsehood. If there was one thing that I would like to tell the church, not necessarily this church, but the church as a whole, I would tell it this. Stop being fake. Stop trying to be something that you're not. Stop trying to be one way in church and then you live like however you want in the world. You want to put on the new self? You want to put off your old self and put on something new? Start with this. If you're a liar, stop lying. If you don't think you're a liar, but you're one way here and one way somewhere else, stop being fake. That's how you put on the new self. Then he says this. It's not just enough to stop being fake, to put off falsehood. You have to speak truth to your neighbor. When your neighbor asks you a question, do you give him a fake answer that he wants to hear? Ladies, do you tell your girlfriends what they want to hear so they still like you? Or when they tell you something inappropriate, do you back down and not speak the truth in love? When you let your Christian friends ramble on, and this isn't just ladies, this is men too. When you let your Christian friends ramble on, saying the most ridiculous things that are not God-honoring, You need to put off falsehood and speak the truth in love. There's a lot of problems that could be addressed if 
fellow Christians who are members of the same body would speak the truth in love to one another. How do your Sunday school conversations go? What sort of things are we talking about? Are they useful for building up or could we do without them? When somebody says something bogus and off the wall, are you their friend enough to say, brother, sister, that's not exactly right, and then to to gently show them the right way? You're not being mean when you do this. You're being honest. But sometimes honesty isn't welcome, is it? Sometimes your friends don't want to hang around you anymore if you're honest. If you're the one who says, you know, you, you, you probably don't need to spend any more money. You probably, you probably shouldn't go on any more vacations. You should probably have your kids in church a little more than you do. No, nobody wants that kind of friend to come around, do they? But that's what we need to do if we want to put on the new self. You've got to speak the truth in love. Now, here we go. Now, don't hear me as being legalistic. If you've heard me being legalistic, you, you missed it all. You've got to go back and listen to the sermon again. So... Put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. In your anger, don't sin. So he says, I understand you get angry. There's not a problem with you getting angry. But when you get angry, don't sin. The difference between the old man and the new man is that the old man used to get real fired up. The old man used to want to fight. The new man doesn't want to do that. He does get angry, but he doesn't sin. He says... Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. So how do you put off the old man and pick up the new man? Well, you do get angry because people are people, right? And they make you angry. But when they make you angry, you don't let the sun go down on that anger. You're not angry day in and day out like you were before. The old man gets angry. The old man stews on that anger and becomes bitter and rageful and all of these other things, and then he blows up. The new man doesn't do it. The new man forgives before it gets too late and before the devil gets a foothold to play all sorts of mind games with him and make you do a bunch of ridiculous things. In the book of Psalms, you don't have to turn there unless you're going to be quick, Psalm 4.4, this is David when he quotes that, be angry but don't sin. Psalm 4.4, in your anger do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. So David says, if you want to put on the new man, when you're laying in your bed at night and you're searching your heart, when you're angry, be silent. How many times have you told your spouse when you're laying in bed, boy, I'd like to yank that person's neck off. Can you believe what they did? And y'all are looking at me like I'm the only person that gets angry. Now, I hadn't said that about any of you guys, just so you know. It's only other people. But you get angry. And what do we do when we get angry? We run this thing. James said that this thing is sharp. It's like a rudder, and it can turn the whole ship. And so if you want to put on the new man, when you're angry, try this. Be quiet. Don't speak. But let your mind, what does he say? Search your heart and be silent. Now, couple of quick points of application. It's not just be silent with this, but be silent with things that you might say in text messages and emails also. You see, there's a button on your computer that could save you a lot of heartache. Instead of replying back to a nasty email, there's a little button right beside the send button that says save as draft. 
Some of you might get nasty emails a lot, and it may be wise for you to, instead of blasting someone back, you save it, and you stew on it for 24 hours. And then you might find that your actual reply, your new self reply, is a lot different than the old self reply. You following me? This doesn't say in Ephesians that you have to make everything right before the sun goes down. This just says don't be angry before the sun goes down. And so a good point of application for you, Christian, is that when somebody makes you angry, you don't have to run to them immediately and tell them why they made you angry and how angry you are. You can sleep on it. You forgive them. You sleep on it. Take 24, 48 hours, think about why you're mad, and then go to them. I guarantee you it's a much more pleasant conversation than when you're in the heat of the moment, angry, you go to them and blast them with both barrels. But then you might say, well, I'm not going to bed angry then. I got it out. Well, then you just picked up the old self also, and you're not the new guy that you're supposed to be. So we said, in your anger, don't sin. That's how you put the new man on. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. The reason that you give the devil a foothold when you're angry is because your mind goes nuts when you're angry. You do all kinds of ridiculous things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the cat out of the bag. I'm going to tell you a quick story about probably one of the most angry times I got. I had just gotten back from two weeks. You get two weeks leave when you come from overseas. And so I was in Iraq for a year. I was home for two weeks on leave. And we're out at Oregon Inlet, right? And so I've got my whole family out in the water, and we're surfing. We're all trying to surf at least. And we had gone far enough down Oregon Inlet, there was nobody around us. And this car pulls up right next to my car, and he gets out. And I think, you know, there's this whole beach out here. There's miles of beach, and this guy parks right next to me. What's his problem? Well, he gets his fishing stuff out. And I'm out there and I thought, surely this guy is not going to fish right here where we're surfing. There's a whole beach out here. Well, he gets his stuff together and uh, I see him set out all of his PVC pipes. He puts his poles in the rod holders and I think, this guy is really nice. He's going to wait till we're done surfing and then he's going to start fishing. What a good guy. Well, I see him start putting bait on hooks. And I'm, I've got my family out there, and I'm keeping a close eye on them. And I'm already a tensed-up guy anyways because you go from getting shot at to now you're hanging out at the beach with your family. And so we're out there, and I watch him pick up one of these surf casting rods, and this guy casts right at us. And so I'm on my surfboard. I'm laying down on it. My family is all off to the right, and I'm pushing them in on waves. And we're probably 100 yards out. Well, his three-ounce sinker lands right next to me in the water and splashes. And so I think, no way, no way this guy just did that. And so I grab his line after it sinks and I bite it. And I push my family into the water. I push them all into the beach and I walk over to the guy. And uh, after I'd pushed them all in nicely, and now I'm, I'm paddling over to where he is right at him. So there's no mistake what Bobby's doing. And I'm, I'm home for two weeks, and so Jesse runs over to me. You know, we're out of the water. We're, we're still kind of in the honeymoon phase. She's going to give me a big hug. She doesn't know what's going on. And I give her the surfboard. And I go over there, and I walk right up to this guy. And the new man doesn't do that. The new man probably doesn't say the things that I want to say to him. The old man fights. The old man gets angry. Are you any more manly when you pick a fight than you are when you forgive someone? Does it make you more of a stud because you get angry and you get in people's face? 
I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think a real man, a real Christian, doesn't do that sort of thing. Now, that sort of thing makes for a great story. Trust me, I would have loved to have rolled around in the sand with that guy and gotten in a fight with him at the time. I was still high-strung from, from being in the military. There was a lot of things that I would have liked to have taken place, but they didn't. It didn't go that far. Because the new man doesn't do those things. The new man now has self-control, and he's able not to get angry, and he's able not to fight. And so you don't have to do the same things that you did before you were a believer in Christ. You following me? But those things don't happen by themselves. You have to put them on. You have to actively work at things like self-control. So he says, don't give the devil a foothold. When you're angry and when you're thinking about those things, Satan wants to jump in and he wants to make you act on everything that you're thinking. When that sinker landed right next to me, my first thought was to punch that guy right in between his eyes. But if I would have done that, I probably wouldn't be here right now either. Because I probably would have been in jail. And that's the God honest truth. And so the devil wants to take you in your anger and he wants to use it as a strong foothold to bring you down. And so you have got to guard all of those thoughts and you've got to somehow find a way to get through them and don't be angry because Satan wants to use your anger. Then he says this, and we're, this goes a little bit faster. Verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. That's pretty easy. I don't think that most of you guys are kleptomaniacs, but if you are, steal no longer. He says, but you must work doing something useful with your hands so that you may have something to share with those in need. Now, this is a picture of the gospel. You were one way. Now he says, don't be that way anymore. Now you should be something completely different. So the guy who used to steal, now I want you to work hard, but I don't just want you to work hard for you. I want you to work hard so now that you can share with people. So you're going above and beyond. You're not the same you anymore. You're something different. So don't steal, but work hard and then share. Verse 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. If there was another problem that I thought American Christians had, it would be this. Oh, the unwholesome things that come out of our mouths. Unwholesome isn't just dirty jokes. Unwholesome is anything that isn't beneficial for building others up. Anything. You want to talk about how bad somebody's cooking is? That doesn't build anybody up. You want to talk about how bad our taxes are? That doesn't build anybody up. You want to talk about our current administration? That doesn't build anybody up. I'm guilty of all these things too. There are all sorts of things that we as Christians, when we get together, we complain about and we bellyache about. But all of them are unwholesome. They don't do us any good for building others up. Because remember, we're not like the rest of the world anymore. God clearly says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is, give to God what is God's. So, you know, if we get taxed 45%, God knows. Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts. But he says, give it. I know it's there. I'm going to take care of you. 
And so we say all of these unwholesome things, and I haven't even gotten into all of the junk that we watch and we repeat, all of the songs that we sing, and we're actually singing ridiculously unwholesome things. We haven't even talked about that. I'm just talking about the church could benefit so much more if we encouraged one another instead of saying things that were worthless. When was the last time you came to church and you felt more built up by the conversations you had with friends and not more torn down? When was the last time you went to Sunday school, you told them you were having a bad week, and they came around you and they encouraged you? It's something to think about. We need to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, I wish I could spend more time on that, but I'm not going to, uh, because you're going to think I'm being legalistic. But if it's not wholesome and edifying for the body, you shouldn't be saying it. And yes, that means that we should be a lot quieter than we actually are. You'll find that you sin a lot less when you keep this little thing quiet. You'll also, and this is an insult, you'll also, people will also think you're incredibly wiser when you keep this thing quiet. They will. Because what you say, when you choose to speak, it will be of importance. You won't just be the person overflowing of the mouth. People will value what you say if you say less. It's true. That would, that would solve a lot of marital issues, wouldn't it? If we all talked less. So, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Sometimes it's with your words. Listen, when you got saved... When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of you. You, as a believer in Christ, need to be a safe place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. When you act like the world and when you behave like the world, you are actively grieving the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Paul says in Corinthians, he's talking about sex outside of marriage. He says, would you join Christ to a prostitute? You say, no, no, we would, we would never do that. And he says, but you as a Christian, when you join yourself sexually with someone who's, who's not your spouse, you are actively bringing Christ somewhere he doesn't need to be, thus grieving the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. So whenever you do anything, that God himself wouldn't do, you are actively grieving the spirit who's dwelling inside of you. It would be like taking your grandmother to a monster truck rally. She would say, no, I don't want to go there. It's loud. I don't want, I don't like big trucks. I don't like noise. I really don't even like a lot of people. Don't take me there. You can hear her saying all of those things, but you drag her there anyways. You do the same thing to God. God is inside of you. You're actively doing things, going to places and saying things. And God's saying, no, I don't want to be a part of that. And so how do you put on the new self? You stop all of that. You stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. That's easy. You shouldn't be bitter. If you're always hemming and hawing around, you're bitter. If there's always a problem, you're bitter. Rage. And anger, you guys got those. Brawling, fighting, don't fight. Um, and, and you think that this is common sense for a lot of Christians, but it's not. Listen, don't fight. 
That's, it's never, it, nothing should ever go to a fist fight. Okay? Unless they say something about your wife, then maybe. You shouldn't fight. Okay? And slander. Don't slander people along with every form of malice. Slander and malice are the ones that we'll talk about for a brief second. Are you always saying something negative about other people? Are you malicious? Do you hurt people with your words even when they're not around? First of all, if you will talk about somebody when they're not around, you're a coward. If you won't say it to their face, you shouldn't say it. And let me take it a step farther. If you haven't already said it to their face, don't say it. And once you say it to their face, there's no need to say it anymore because they know. Nobody else needs to know. So, get rid of every form of malice. Get rid of every form of slander. Then do this. So you've put off those. Now, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So, a better thing to do when I'm on the beach and I get mad at the guy is you don't paddle in and get in his face. You paddle in and you tell him, I understand you did that. I didn't like it. But listen, I forgive you. Boy, that sets the whole conversation in a different mindset. It takes a much bigger man to go in and not stir up trouble and to offer forgiveness when it's not asked for and when sometimes it's not even wanted. That's what the bigger man does. And so you be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ forgave you. And finally, he says this, and this is what I want you to get. Chapter 5, verse 1. So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Then he says, be imitators of God. That's how you put on the new self. Remember in the earlier chapter, and this is all one book, he said, you were aliens. You were foreign, but God adopted you into his family, and now you're one of his. Now you're a child of God. And now what does he say? He says, now that you're a child of God, you need to act like God. And so it's like Paul puts his arm around you, and he says, finally, if you want to put on the new self, act like dad. Be just like dad. Be like God. He is your ultimate father. Just like your kids want to be just like you, you should want to be just like God. The country song about that too, right? You should actively be wanting to be like God because dads, whether you realize it or not, your kids want to be just like you. That's why my kids wear suits to church. I don't make them wear suits to church. I don't even like wearing suits to church. But they want to. Why? Because dad does. And he doesn't complain about it. They think that I like it. And so they want to do it because they think that's what I enjoy. You, in the same manner, should be just like God. You should be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And you should live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering offering and sacrifice to God. And so you live a life of love because Christ loved you. Now, this is when it gets really good. You should live that life of love because Christ loves you. And how much does he love you? We said it's indescribable. You can't understand it. You can't fathom it. And so sometimes you should be doing things out of a love for God. And when somebody says, dude, that's crazy. Why are you doing it? You say, I, I don't know. I just love God so much. And it's, it's, I can't explain it. God loves me so much. Christ loves me so much. He gave me so much. I'm willing to do these things for him out of the love that he has for me. And so, no, I can't always explain why I do some of the crazy things for God that I do. 
But I do know that he loves me so much that it's no skin off my teeth to do incredible things for him also. So the Bible says, greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friend. God actively laid down his son's life for you. Christ actively laid down his life for you. And he asks you to do very little, believe it or not. It sounds like I've given you a lot. But when somebody says, be like me, they're asking you to do something that they've already done. And it's, it's, it's not that big. We are so far away from what Christ really wants us to be that it seems like a big thing living a godly life, but it's not. It's actually the greatest life you'll ever live. And so he's not asking you to do something that you will hate. He's actually asking you to do something that will benefit you, and he's going to help you in it. And so, guys, if you're here and all of this sounds crazy and you think I've lost my mind, God says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ and you think the things I'm saying are crazy, you've never experienced the love of Christ because people will do crazy things when they experience the love of Christ. It's that good. Jesus says, follow me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. None of these things I'm telling you should be burdensome and they all should be fairly light. Will they be hard? Yes but they shouldn't be burdensome. And so the the invitation today is that if you don't know Christ, if everything I'm saying sounds foreign to you, you need to know him and the love he has for you. And when you know that love, then you will be able to freely do these things I'm talking about. Some of you Christians during this invitation, you need to rethink about all of the things that Christ has done for you so that you can do these things out of a heart of joy and a heart of love as opposed to grudgingly doing them. So... As you guys come forward, I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll enter into our uh, hymn of invitation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessings that you've given us in Christ. And God, thank you that, uh, that you don't just tell us to do a bunch of things, but you actively help us do them also. Lord, I pray for all of us here that we would, on a daily basis, put off the old self and put on the new self. God, help us to be people who reflect you. And not the old us. God, help us to die to our sin and live to you. Lord, forgive us where we fail you. And give us the strength and courage to keep fighting day in and day out. To live that resurrected life that you've called us to. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.